This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey, and welcome back to the Young Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Kenzie Aaron of Aaron Iron and Steel. It's good to have you. This week, well, today in the world, it is you know November 11th on the day that we're recording this. So it's uh, we call it Remembrance Day in Canada. Um, our U.S. listeners will know it as Veterans Day. But I hope you guys have all taken. You know, this episode's coming out quite a while after today, but. I hope you guys all took the time to um, appreciate the the sacrifice and the things that we get from all the people and all our veterans across the world. So, yeah, that's that. I get yeah. So yeah, that's that. But on to the Young Bakers podcast this week. I don't know if you can hear him snuffling around over there, but I've got an extra special guest for you guys this week. We've been trying to figure out a time to get together and do this for a while, and we just fought through an hour and a half of technical difficulties to get this interview to you guys. I hope it was so, worth it. Well, I'm sure it will be. So without further ado, I would love to introduce to you guys Brendan Murren of Iron Ridge Forge. Uh, hey guys, I'm really happy to be on the podcast. I'm, uh, as you said, Brendan Murren, Iron Ridge Forge. I'm a bladesmith out of uh, North Georgia. I've been making knives um, since I was maybe 9 or 10, but I only made a something that you could really call a knife at age 13 or 14. But uh, happy to be here. Ah, happy to have you. So you are a fantastic bladesmith. I've followed your work for quite a while. Oh, thanks. And... You know, I've just I've been thinking about having you on here for a while and it's it's exciting to have you. So you know, I I've been following you for a while, although I don't know I've been following you for years or anything, and our listeners probably don't know who you are. So do you want to give us some uh backstory? Like you said earlier, the deep lore. Ah uh, yes, the deep lore. So I really cannot well, I should start before that. We're, we're taking a deep dive here, apparently. So my dad, um, my whole family, really, is makers and craftsmen. My dad uh, used to build pole barns in, uh, in his youth. He grew up in the Hudson Valley. And um, my dad and my uncle Jeff, who is uh, now passed, used to build pole barns. My grandpa was a plumber. Um, my great-grandparents came here from Ireland and they were they were farmers and you know farmer is the most handy person in 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 the world and so they were kind of jack of all trades and my uh grandpa was a cop in New York City moved out to uh Palinville New York yeah, sometime in the I want to say the 50s or the 60s around that area and my dad was raised there. He learned plumbing, he learned carpentry, woodworking, and he built barns to uh to pay for college with uh with Michael Jeff. And um moved down here, married my mom. And uh he also he's like super into motorcycles. Uh, rides all the time, teaching me to ride. You know, into the whole culture of it all. He loves it. I love it. 
And I grew up around motorcycles and in the in the machine shop and in the workshop and in the carpentry shop. All all the shops. And he kind of imparted onto me those uh, those values of, you know, don't throw it away if you could fix it. Don't buy it if you can make it. And that that's kind of where it came from. At age, I don't know, 9, 10, 11, like really young, I got it into my head. I don't know how that I wanted to make a knife. I think it was because... I had, he'd given me like this nice Bowie knife and I'd lost it, but I got it into my little 10 year old brain. I wanted a new knife and apparently I had the skill set to make it, which of course I was sorely mistaken, but you know, whatever I thought I did. So I got a leaf blower, I got some firewood and I got some bricks and I built a little, little box and I started a little fire in it and I aimed the leaf blower at it. And it took about 10 minutes to heat up this little piece of rebar. And we already had this, like, you know, little shop anvil. 20-pound anvil. Do your leather working on, do a little bit of woodworking on it. Maybe you need to hammer it on the workbench or whatever. And I took that out, sat in the dirt. And I was sitting there on my knees, pounding on this piece of rebar. It took me about two hours to pound it flat. And I went over to the, uh, the bench grinder. Ground it down. Went over to the, uh, the uh, 4x36, I think it is, a little woodworking belt sander, put a bevel on it. It was, it was of course, the ugliest thing you'd ever seen, but it was, I was proud of it. And I made this little awful little leather sheath out of it, stapled the leather together. It was just the worst. But I was proud of it, and I loved it, and I still have it. And I just kind of been making ever since. At some point, it turned into a ho- from a hobby into a business, and I really got serious at about 14. Like this is something I want to pursue. This is something I want to really get good at. And it just kind of grew from there. I um, took out a loan from my dad. I took out $500. He gave me $500. And over the course, that was when I was like 14, and over the course of maybe the next year, year and a half, I paid it off to him, and I used the $500 to buy myself the shittiest bench grinder you had ever seen. And I kind of bought different parts and slapped it together, and uh, the chassis I bought off this old man who made them, who has uh, since departed. And it was solid. It was nice. I mean, it wasn't like Broadbeck nice, but it was nice. Like welded quarter-inch steel. Took both of us to pick it up. It was nice. And of course, then I screwed it up with all my awful TIG welding on it and drilling holes and putting bolts and screws through it. And that's the one I still use now. Of course, it's better now. I've taken everything off and kind of re-outfitted it to a point that it's suitable for my needs and kind of developed it through the years and as you know your knife maker I know you are Kenzie and most people listening to this probably are that they say that the anvil is the heart of the shop I really think it's a 2 by 72 because you could take out any of my other tools and I'd still be able to make a decent knife but not the 2 by 72 I mean I'm kind of rambling but you know it grew from there once I got the 2 by 72 it was just off to the races Awesome. So it sounds like, you know, the shop is in your blood and Oh yeah. 
No, you had a similar beginning to a lot of people where, you know, that idea gets in your head and it doesn't go out until, I don't know, you die. And yeah, that was, bug, I gotta, right? I gotta, yeah, it doesn't go away. There's no cure that we've found yet, but, um, that was prob. I gotta hand it to you. That was probably the deepest dive we've ever gotten on a backstory. And I, I definitely liked it. I hope that's um, a good thing. Thanks. Also- yeah, yeah, no, it was, a, it was impressive. Um, you're, you're a little bit choppy. I wonder if there's somewhere in your house with faster mm. Wi-Fi or something. Yeah, I'm kind of like just walking around outside carrying my computer. I was trying to cool off. Let me head inside. That was probably not the best yeah. of ideas. Just leave the door well, open. I'll, I'll let the cool in. Is it better now? Yeah, it's just for like an hour. Uh, I think so. We'll see next time you talk for a while. Okay. But... No, anyways, though, that's that's no problem. The story was definitely still solid. And oh, it's good, cool good. to Thanks. hear that, you know, going back, your family has been um, working with their hands for a long time. Yep. And I feel like kids that get exposed to it are a lot more likely to get into it because, you know, it catches you and it. The sooner you're exposed to it, the sooner you get into it, I guess. Yeah, the sooner you sink all your money into anvils and tools... And that's and that's just it's, that's no it money. for you. That's it's over for you. <laughs> You're in too deep to turn back now. Yeah. So and I liked I really liked what you said about uh, the belt sander, and you know the anvil is definitely the heart of a blacksmith shop, but for a bladesmith shop, I gotta I gotta agree with you that the two by seventy two or any comparable you know powerful enough grinder is definitely the heart of your shop. Oh yeah. And I, I noticed a, like a notable jump in my quality once I got the two by seventy two. Yeah, that's that's. Oh, uh oh. Did, all right, my computer just kind of. Never mind. It's all it's all good. We're still we're still rolling. Yeah, you still sound good. But yeah, that two by seventy two. I was working on probably like a lot of you guys listening. I was working on a uh, one by thirty. Is it? Yeah, the the one by yeah. thirty. And it was just not sustainable. I was sitting there for hours and hours and hours just grinding a single blade and going through three or four belts. And it, it was just not working out. Well, and the 1x30 looks so much more like a knife-making grinder than like a 4x36. Yeah, it's a you step know, up Even though it's that. like the same price. Well, even though it's the same price, you want the 1x30, but I feel like the bigger belt will give you more bang. Yeah, I don't know. I never actually really did any extensive work with the uh, 4x36. Oh, I spent Maybe. years on it. Well, oh, a God, year and I'm a half. sorry. What? <laughs> That's, it, that, that must have been in a less than ideal situation. Oh, well, it was tough. That probably contributed to why I make chef's knives, because I couldn't do a plunge line. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's a... Uh, you know, I've seen um, Alex Steele now sells ceramic belts for both of those sizes, the 1x30 and the 4x36. So if you're working on one of those, you should go check out Alex Steele's shop and get some good belts because a ceramic belt makes a lot of difference. Yeah, uh, the ceramic belts, you really can't beat them. No, and I tried using uh, like zirconia belts for wood because I thought, oh, you know, wood's not so bad. <laughs> But I noticed that it still burns out faster, so I just I just buy ceramic belts now. Um, it's worth it. I've found I haven't found a scenario in which I like the 
aluminum oxides or the cubic zirconias. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't, so. I just can't, can't do it with those things. You're going, you're into a belt of bevel sometimes. Yeah, and it just gets hot and. Yeah. yeah Ceramic belts run cooler and buy nice ones too. You know, it, it'll save you more money to spend more on your belts. Yeah, it really will. That's the biggest mistake a lot of new guys make. Just go for the cheapest belt you can find. That is not the move. Yeah. Although I've seen and uh, an issue that a lot of young makers face is that you don't have a lot of money for an initial investment. So it's really hard to stock up on a bunch of belts, especially at 10 bucks a belt. Yeah, so exactly. once you once you have a nice stockpile built up, it's not bad to buy them two or three at a time. But getting that original investment into belts is really difficult, especially after you've just bought your grinder, which is all the money that a young maker has. Yeah, I uh, I was pretty lucky in that regard. Cause as I said, I got that loan from my dad because he's knows the importance of like working with your hands and having a craft and all that. But for a lot of guys, like you said, it takes years for them to accumulate enough tools to even get to the point where they're making a half-decent knife. Yeah. Yeah, and tools make a big difference. It's completely possible with basic tools, but, you know, it sucks. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. If we had $100,000 workshops, we would be making some pretty crazy knives. Yeah, I mean, some nice stuff comes out of that. Oh, yeah, tools, I'd say, is maybe like... 30 to 40 percent of your work quality well and it's something that i noticed uh watching forged in fire is that the guys that make the nicest stuff in the forged in fire shop then they go home and you see that they always have a nicer shop they have more tools and stuff and you know i guess it's it's hard to like get a correlation causation kind of dynamic on that because people who have nicer shops have been making for longer and well, not always. Well, they'll come well, in and they'll say, I have always. six years, and then someone with four years comes in and they just had money to invest. And, you know, they have a baiter grinder or something, and they're, you know, making nicer stuff with the yeah, same tools. Yeah, I guess tools. so. If you're, if you're just rich, then that's, yeah, that's you know, definitely a leg up in the game. Experience with nice tools makes the difference, too. But yeah, in the end, it all right. comes down to ability. Yeah, I'd, I'd say. I mean, if you took some random guy off the street, walked him into a $300,000 shop, he wouldn't know what to do. No. But his first knife would come out better than the guy with the rock and a hole in the ground. Yeah, yeah, his first knife would be better than mine. And mine. Yeah, jeez. But uh, it's good to start like that. The journey, the journey is worth it. The journey is so much... You know, the, the worst part of knife making is the first hundred knives. And you just conv- trying to convince yourself these are going to get better. It's going to be. It's going to be great. It's going. It's worth it. And if you're listening to this and you're below that hundred and you're not satisfied with your work, it is so worth it. Keep going. Yeah, just keep pushing. Every as long as every knife is coming out better, or you've fixed the last problem, you know, yeah. get excited about the next project because it's going to be good. Yeah, I found that it's like it's, the point where you transition from noticing like flaws in the blade like there's this grit mark or there's this crack running down the spine or there's this separation in the handle from noticing ways you can improve like you can't notice flaws 
but you just notice ways that you could improve, and that's like a major stepping stone, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is, too. And it's going from... It's once you realize the ability of things. Something that I notice a lot of new makers do is they'll get a 220 grit hand-sanded finish, and the jump between your belt finish, which is... uh you know, obviously vertical grind marks and the horizontal marks of a 220 grit is such a big jump that it's really tempting to sit there with that 220 grit finish and, you know, call it good. But, you know, if you're a new maker or a young maker and you, you're making your first couple knives and you've just gotten into hand sanding, go up another grit and, you know, see how it looks up another grit and keep going until it gets so shiny that it looks bad. And then you'll realize that four or six hundred is pretty nice. Yeah, but I don't, don't stop actually, at two twenty. I actually don't have a lot of experience with uh, hand sanding because a lot of my stuff now is off the belt because I, I draw like I kind of grew up knife making wise watching simple little life videos, and he does. Yeah, I think exclusively off the belt stuff. Well, he does a great belt finish. Yeah, it's. The secret is scotch Bray belts. I'm telling you, those things are they just work. Yeah, but don't try to put vertical or horizontal grind marks. I was taking my blade once and I had this brand new scotch bright. I was trying the extra fine just to see. And I'm like, "Well, I wonder if I could put hor- like, you know, scratches going the long way down the blade." And so I'm like, "Just oh, as long as I'm careful and don't catch the tip in it." And as I was thinking that, I caught the tip in the belt and like tore a gash in my hand and threw the blade oh, on the ground. Yeah, those things are brutal. Tore the belt and nicked the wheel and it was my birthday. It was, oh. <laughs> it was terrible. And some guy came in the shop, kicked you in the face. It was wild. I Might as well. Day. Then yeah. I couldn't make knives for like a week because my oh. hand was completely torn open. Jeez, like that's... I had just finished a month of summer school so it was my first day back in the shop after a month out and I just... <laughs> Just wrecked everything all in one moment. It was terrible. That is painful, man. I, I think I've I've escaped without much significant injury except like the usual burns. So I'm pretty lucky in that regard. Yeah, I haven't had much. Uh, you know, I I still count ten fingers, but yeah, that's that's a win. That's a win for me. Yeah. And you know, to be fair, my uh, the scar on my hand from that cut looks like one of the like creases in your hand, so it's pretty much okay. No I complaints. Know, I, I think to give uh, you got some scars on your hands. That's character. Yeah, scar. It yeah. shows knowledge. Yeah, it's like a or previous stupidity. Well, yeah, I prefer to think of it like a. It tried to kill you, but it could not. <laughs> the grinder will not kill me. I will not die to a 2 by 72 No, but you feel like you might when that 36-grit belt snaps and slaps you in the face. Yeah, and that, like, fraction of a second after you're working on the table saw and the wood catches and it makes that bang noise, and you think, well, that's it for me. And like, well, that was a good run, and then you realize that you're still alive and you feel pretty good. Yeah. yeah that's how it goes. Then you've just exploded so, your piece of koa, so well, that feels bad. Yeah, wish wish that you didn't survive it, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah, wasted 60 bucks on that one. Whoop. That's, yeah, that's how it goes. But 
let's uh let's take it from disasters to hopefully a lack of disasters and talk about um what's been going on in your shop this past week um i actually haven't been doing any doing much knife making for the past like two or three weeks because i just got accepted into shokin in about a month ago and i'm just tying up all my custom orders and just selling off all the stock and getting stuff shipped out and sorting out payments and addresses and emails before I join up. And another thing, I'm building myself a new shop because if you, if you guys follow me, you'll know that certain little wild animals like to come in and steal my leather gloves and it floods. So that's less than ideal. So my dad and I have been working on a a new shop out back, and that's been one hell of a project. We've been working since August, building it in post and beam style, like he uh, like he did in his uh, in his youth. So we're having fun with that. But aside from that, I have not been doing much knife making, just pounding in nails and and the like. Well, wow, it's, ex- it's exciting nonetheless. New shop, new shop is always exciting. I've just been, uh, well, it's only actually been maybe four days since I recorded the last episode, so there's not been too terribly much uh, going on for me. I've just been going out to the new shop every day, loading up my mom's uh, like little hatchback car with as much tools as it can carry every day. Just when I go out there, I bring out a couple things that I need, and... Um, yeah, we're going to put the power hammer on its base tomorrow, but I got it running. To, like I was using it a bit today, just experimenting with it, uh, heated up some steel, and oh my goodness, that that thing is a game changer for sure. Oh man, you got this, me drooling over here. Oh, I took, I don't know, it must have been three quarter inch round or something like that. It was heavier than I like to work by hand, you know, if I get my choice, and I pounded it flat into almost bar stock in one heat and then forged a tang on it in a second heat and then my mom showed up and I had to go home but you know the idea that I could be making a knife in I don't know maybe 20 minutes to forge like is starting to look a lot more realistic I don't know how long it'll take me plus that you know fiddling at the at the anvil with a hand hammer but it's gonna be a lot faster it's always the fiddling at the end and getting everything straight and all the bevels symmetrical. Oh. That's what takes the longest, I'm telling you. And on chef's knives, I don't even forge in my bevels yet. Like, I know eventually I want to to cut down on grind time, but for now, I just try to leave the edge thick and straight and, you know, don't make it any harder on myself grinding than I have to. Yeah, so what kind of steel do you use for your uh, chef's knives? Uh, really simple. Uh... 1075, 84, or 95, depending. Like, I'll use 1095 if I want a hamon. Or I guess oh. it's more of a temper line. I'm not getting technical with it. Yeah, knife talk's uh, going to be on your on, on you about that one. Yeah, well. Fader's going to show up at your house. It's a temper line. Last time I told you, boy. Uh, I, can't, I can't go through that again. Oh, scary. Oh. Oh, wait, yeah. you, you live in Canada, so that's not really an issue. Oh, I'm pretty safe. The illusion of safety. We, we lock our door at night, so hopefully he can't get in. Hey, how's, how's Canada this time of year? I'm thinking of moving. Oh, Canada, 
<laughs> Canada is cold. Canada is cold right now. We've got about a foot of snow on the ground. Oh, I love snow. Um, I'm, I'm down here in Appalachia. We almost never get snow. Man, I gotta like I like a little bit of snow, and the first day that it comes down, it's exciting. But then in the morning, when you have to shovel, and it's like and it's wet, and it sticks to the shovel. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a rough week for weather. It's just cold and snowy right now. But I'm loving the wood stove in the new shop. Oh, you got a wood stove too? I guess it's a too? coal stove. Yeah, wood, and it burns coal too, and that coal is way hotter, so yeah, it that, gets that's pretty toasty. Move. Last shop, I was just burning through pro- propane on this little, like a propane heater in the winters mm. with the wood stove. That's, well, how that's cold does it get there? Uh, At night, maybe 20 degrees up where I am. What wait freezing point is? Oh, I forgot. You guys use uh yeah, sorry Celsius. If I I can base if I can base it off the freezing point of water, I can figure it out. What's it's th- just below freezing. Okay. See, yeah, that's that's a lot warmer than here. Where I don't know how cold is minus twelve, maybe zero degrees for um, you. Um, uh, minus twelve. That's about 27 degrees. Oh. Oh, so then 20 degrees is way below freezing. Yeah, freezing freezing is like 32. Oh. See, Fahrenheit, we can all agree. I know you're American, but we can all agree that Fahrenheit makes no sense. Yeah, we really can. Like, 32 for freezing? I don't even know boiling. It's like 261 or something. What's the point of that? Zero is freezing, 100 is boiling. It's it really easy. does make sense. It, it just makes sense. Even inches, it doesn't really make sense. There should, be, there should be a smaller denomination of an inch, right? There should be like a 112 one should have it, a name. Isn't it a, isn't it a centimeter? No, that's, we have centimeters. We, we use centimeters here. Well, sh- occasionally, but like that's a different measuring system. You know, like, centimeters don't fit neatly into inches. But yeah. I know they talked about this on Knife Talk, too, and I think we're, this is an important conversation. And here, here, we're the international delegates for our countries. And here's the bottom line here. Every, like, field, in even in countries like America, where we use the imperial system, they use the metric system. Like, in precision shooting, we use yards. Like, uh, most outdoorsmen and hikers... And ruckers, we use kilometers, not miles. Knife makers really don't use, like, uh, thous. We use millimeters. Yeah, no, because it breaks down neatly. Look, you've got a kilometer, which is a thousand meters. Kilo means a thousand. Yeah. You've got, you know, then you've got a centimeter, which is, um, what, a hundred thousandth of a kilometer? I think and so. And then you've got a millimeter, which then breaks down. It, it's all base 10. Why doesn't why doesn't imper why doesn't yeah imperial break down on a base twelve system? I, I if there's twelve inches in a foot, you. you know twelve one twelfth of an inch should have a name. It should be a something, you know. And then everything is in twelfths. Then there should be a hundred and twenty feet in a mile. It should make sense. It makes no sense. Yeah, a mile is like a completely arbitrary number. I believe it's. 1,361 feet around there. Make it a 1,000. Oh, yeah. man. 
Uh, you guys, you guys got to figure it out over there. Ah, uh, well, we just gotta just gotta wait for all the boomers to die. Then we'll then we'll change. Then we'll change it. Well, we'll see about that. But to be fair, living in Canada, we use uh, inches more than like I know inches better than I know centimeters. Yeah, because isn't a centimeter like a seventh or a tenth of an inch? Um, probably closer to a seventh. I know it's not very neat. Yeah, in- inches are. I think that's a, one of the good things about an imperial inch. Is a size used in everyday life. Centimeters is just a little bit small for me. Yeah, centimeters, but it's nice for precision. Yeah. You no, know, but an inch, an inch is a nice size for everyday life. I, I do. I do like inches. Yeah, we rarely deal in centimeters. Plus, we get everything here from the states, anyways. So all our stuff is, you know, measured in inches. But hmm. I don't know. Regardless, regardless, um, we've strayed slightly away from the point, haven't we? Eh, a little bit. I th- I think this is a very valuable conversation that needs to be uh, yeah, preserved to the ages. We'll we'll call this a nice tangent. I think that was a good one. Yes. One of one of the best yet. The the best yet so, was about centimeters. You need to have some more interesting guests on. Well, you know, usually our interesting conversation is about making things. Oh know. yes, this is the knife make. This is this isn't the centimeters podcast. They, I our I tangents forgot. are usually pretty easy. This was a good one. So right. we were talking about our past weeks. Oh yeah, I mean that's pretty much it. I've been working they, on my uh, little shop building. Yeah. I guess I've been, you know, doing similar stuff, moving in. Yeah, so tell me, is your shop, like, uh, not where your house is? Yeah, it's about, so I live in town, and then my, it's, um, the shop is on my grandparents' property, which oh, is I see. five or seven minutes outside of town, so it's just a short drive. And you're driving? No, I'm 15, so next year I can drive. Oh, yeah, I've been, oh my god. I got my permit three months after my birthday, and I turned 16 in January, and I have to wait another three months to get my full license. It's it's ridiculous. So there, you can get your license, your full license at 16. Yeah, we get our full license at 16. It's I okay, mean, okay, yeah, it's great. That's here too, but most like I know in BC next door here, you have to be 19. That is wild. I feel like lots of them. Is all of America 16? Um, I think most of it. Most of the oh. south, most of the north. Yeah, maybe one or two states it's 18, but pretty oh. much, yeah, all of it For is... For some uh, reason, I thought it was older. Especially because you guys' age of majority is 21. Yeah, in some states it's 18, in some states it's 21. It's weird. It's, we have a very disorganized system of that kind of thing. Ours is all over the place too, yeah. somewhere between eighteen and twenty-one. That's a pretty We're good age, I Alberta. think. Yeah, it's uh, it's all good. Yeah. But so yeah, that's where my shop is a little outside. So we've just been, but it's so nice to have heat. Like the garage here that I was working in, and the tent in the backyard is not heated, but that wood stove makes all the difference. It's yeah. insulated. It, I haven't uh, done any working in the new shop, but I fired up the wood stove. Oh, it's so nice. I hear you. So wood nice. stove is just the coolest thing. 
Yeah, I actually heat my entire house with wood. So, I mean, we love it. We have like, we spend like uh, $500 a year on heat. Buy firewood from a guy down the street, kneel the firewood man, buy a cord, last us all winter. Yeah, I can see myself doing that someday. I like chopping wood anyway, so. Yeah, chopping wood's awesome. Oh, we used great. to, uh, my dad and I used to get the cord ourselves, like in logs. We'd go up uh, into the uh, forest up north. My uh, dad's buddy has uh, tracked land up there. We used to cut down some trees, bring it back in a trailer, rent the log splitter, and spend all week just chopping it up. Yeah, it's a, it's a good way to spend some time. Nice weekend. Oh, yeah. So, now, we covered, you know, I mentioned earlier that um, one of the challenges of being a young maker is that initial investment before you start getting the returns of selling your knives or yeah. whatever you make. Uh, we talked about not being able to drive, which are two of the you know really common um, challenges that we mention on the show a lot. Are there any other challenges to being young that you've encountered? Oh yeah, in your biggest time? biggest one. You got to go to school all day. That's, yeah, that's pretty big. But don't adults have to go to work? Yeah, but adults can do knife making as their work, right? I suppose if I was an adult right now, if I was a grown-up, then I would probably be working full-time right now instead of going to school. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to actually... I'm probably not going to do knife making as a career... Just, like, retire early, 40 or 50, and just do it. Hmm. That's probably the plan. Well, I don't intend just knife-making as a career, but making things is probably the plan. Yeah. I don't think I could bring myself to go to work somewhere else after I've discovered this. I don't know. I, I gotta. My parents are not keen on me being a knife-maker for a number of reasons, but uh, I was planning on... Uh, Joining up with the armed forces, being a combat medic for a couple of years, because I want to get some free medical training, and uh, you know, free PTSD. But I'll I'll deal I'll deal with that later. And then I was gonna go into forestry, and then retire at like 40 and do knife stuff. That was my whole plan. Huh. Well, that's that's an interesting uh, interesting career plan. I'll be damned if I'll ever sit down at the desk. Done no, plenty I of that never at school. sit at a desk. Ugh. That's part of the reason that I want to go to art school. Art school. You know, you know how the way people look at you when you say you want to go to art school. Yeah. They they give you a look. I'll tell you. But I can't. I don't want to sit at a desk when I go to school. So, but I don't want to do like painting or drawing for art. But. They offer, you know, other things that apply nicely to what I want to do. Have you ever heard of the uh, New England School of Metalwork? New England? The New England School of Metalwork. Yeah. yeah, I heard of them. Don't they do, like, knife-making courses? I believe so. But it's not like a degree, you know? Uh, yeah, if you're looking for a degree... I think it's just degree, a couple weeks. Yeah, if you're looking for a degree, that would probably be the way to go. Well, I noticed there's also the Unplugged Workshop in Toronto, and they offer some pretty long courses. There's like a six-month hand-tool wow. woodworking course and stuff. 
So I'd like to take some of those along with some time in the art school. Because, you know, if you if you work in their jewelry and metal shop, you can learn, or and the sculpture shop, between the two of those, I can learn a lot of applicable skills. Yeah, that's really a big trouble with knife makers is that it's a... Uh kind of a niche thing i mean we're, we're in like our community and we feel like it's so big because there's so many other people doing it but as opposed to like the thousands and thousands of people doing jewelry or making sculpture or painting we're pretty small yeah yeah it's a limited it's a limited community yeah, and along like, with a lot of other crafts you can't really get a formal education yeah like i don't know of any school where you can get a degree in, you know, fine, fine furniture making. You know, you can, you c there's school for wood, but when you get into these finer crafts that, yeah, fall in that awkward space between a trade and an art, there's, yeah. there's no formal education for that. There's a f classes, private classes, and that's really it. Yeah, I think um, part of that reason is if you're being a knife maker... You don't really need that degree, whereas like um, a lot of the significance of why people go to college is to get that piece of paper saying, I went to college, hire me. But in the knife-making world, you just have experience, and yeah. your piece of paper is your work and your portfolio, I guess. But it's, it's interesting, and it's something that I mention on a lot of episodes that I think it would, re it would be really cool to start a school for things like that. And perhaps not a full, like, four-year degree, but if you could go for, yeah, like that Unplugged Workshop does a six-month-long class. So, you know, classes like that or a one-year or a two-year program, I feel like it could be really valuable to help get people into it and make it a viable career option. Yeah, that could. That could. I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah. something that I think about occasionally. And it's some ideas of, you know, my future plans. And so that brings me to a question that I like to ask occasionally. And because your career plans seem so interesting, I'd love to hear what your plans for Iron Ridge Forge are. Plans for Iron Ridge Forge. Um, well, I'm gonna keep growing my business the way I've been doing I think I'm really gonna do more work through Shokinen because custom orders are they're great and I love doing them but at the end of the day the goal is to make something that you've come up with and a lot of the time with you have a client and they want something done and they need it by this time frame and they want it this way it's it's you still have a lot of creative room to work with but I often feel as if I could have made a better knife if I had just designed the thing myself. So I'm probably going to do a lot of my work through Shokinen. And I'm so pleased that I, got, uh, that I got accepted. Because it was like a year ago I sent my thing. And I, I, as, as I understand it, they don't just let anybody in. So I was actually really surprised I got in. I, I didn't think I was going to. And... Yeah, just happy about that. Gonna start doing work through that mainly, I think. Just uh, one-off pieces. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that's... And uh, custom orders are a great way to get started, but yeah. 
You know, when you get bored of the project halfway and you know that that's what you have to do in the shop today, it starts to take some of the passion out of it. That it does. Um, I've I've just recently gotten bored of custom orders as well, but I'm actually going in the opposite direction. Instead of doing customs, I just want to sit and make the same thing over and over. I'd love to make uh, you know, <coughs> production knives, not production, but not you know stuff? mass produced, but. Yeah, I get you know, <coughs> I get what you're saying. Make a batch of five and then do another batch of five with the same knife. I'd really love to get yeah, into that's, that. That's something I've been flirting with for a while because you see like um, like fader knives or hatcher yeah. knives or freehill blades. They have like three or four signature designs, and you see it and you say, "Oh, that's uh, that's so and so," and it's like really distinctive and really repeatable. And, and it's the kinda, most yeah. Well, it's the most efficient way to make money. Yeah. As well, as a business, it's the most clearly cut and you know efficient way. That the difficulty then becomes finding uh, enough people that want that knife, because it's yeah. easy to find somebody who wants exactly what they want, but it's hard to find enough people that want exactly what you've just made. Yeah, and, and so I think I've been. Oh, oh sorry, sorry, go ahead. Um, I've been talking. Well, I just started talking to. Uh, Kevin Kent, who owns Knifeware, which is a series of stores across, you know, a couple major cities in Canada. Um, I don't want to, you know, get excited or jump the gun, but, you know, in, in the f- near future, we're going to be meeting up and he's going to check out some of my knives. And in my head, I'm secretly hoping that he's going to say that he'd like to stock them in his store, which is what I originally asked. I sent an email uh, proposing that idea to him. And so he said he'd like to see my knives. I'm hoping that they'll be up to snuff to be stocked in a store. And having a retailer would make business really simple and straightforward. So yeah, I, that's, that's cool. I don't expect him to be impressed by my knives or, you know, to stock them. But regardless, it, I'm really excited. It's going to be a good person to know. And it's another um, outlet. Just like you talked about, you know, Shokunin is a new outlet for a place for your knives to go and a place for people to find you. And I'm hoping that this could be one for me. But off of that, you've mentioned Shokin and Collaborative a couple of times, and I know what it is, but you know, a number of our listeners may not know. So would you like to give a brief rundown of what Shokin and Collaborative is and the process of how you got on and how you found that, you know, how it went for you? Yeah, I probably should have done that sooner. Uh, anyway, Shokin and Collaborative... Shokunin means craftsman in uh, Japanese, I think. So it was started by uh, Neil Kamamura. He's an incredibly talented bladesmith out of Hawaii. And uh, as I understand it, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm by no means an expert, but as I understand it, he started this collaborative as a way to um, give newer knife makers or knife makers like me and probably a lot of you guys listening who don't really have a like a huge following, maybe a couple hundred or a couple thousand followers, an ability to get their work out to people. Because there's so many guys making like beautiful, beautiful stuff uh, that, that I'm sure it would sell. It's just incredible. But they have like 600, 700, 1,000 followers, and they just can't get their stuff out there. So Shokin and Collab kind of solves that problem. They have like a couple hundred thousand followers, and they'll do your marketing for you. 
and they'll kind of get your work out there and get your name out there, which is super important if you're like a small shop guy without like a huge following. And so that, that's pretty much why I, why I send in an application. And in order to apply, ah, uh, man, I'm trying, I'm, I, I know I'm, I'm trying to remember here. I believe you send, uh, there's an application form you fill out on the Shokudin Collab website. And it's like a name, it, social media, phone number, email, and why I want to join. And you get, you got to really ham it up, really lay it on thick for them to kind of catch notice of you. And that's what I did. Wrote a couple paragraphs. And, um, and you have to submit to them a cut test video. And this was, I made that, the cut test, that is, I believe, whew, two years ago, maybe I filmed it. And you have to, these, the essential thing is, you have to take your knife, chop some block of wood, or like a two by four, or whatever, and then you have to clean cut a piece of paper. And so that's what I did. And it got uh, ended up getting approved. So that's uh, what it is and how you get in. And there, well, obviously it took them a year to get to you. They've got a lot of people right yes. now. So they're asking that, uh, I just looked on the website, and they're asking that you submit your video of your cut test on Instagram by just tagging them in a cut test video. Yeah, I forgot to mention um, that one. So it's it's not difficult to apply they're very accessible and oh, yeah. they're they're not asking for a ton you know it you don't have to pay money to apply you don't have to it's it's very accessible to anybody but they're very selective and obviously they must be very selective and they're going through a lot of people and that's why you know it took them a long time to get to you yeah if you send in an application don't expect them to get back to you next month it's gonna it's gonna be a while well, and this is a very big deal. I, I guess I should offer my congratulations to you Thanks, for getting man. in. That's, uh, That's really exciting. I'm, I'm still kind of shocked that I got in. I, I got up. It was. I have a very firm belief in life that you can only receive so much bad news before you start getting good news. And the previous day, um, my dog passed away, which, you know, sucks. And that morning I woke up and there was the email. You've been invited into Shokin and Collab. And I was like, wow, look at that. Universe does really uh, kind of take you for some ups and downs. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your dog, too. Yeah, but that was, that was a long time ago. Her, uh, yeah. She lived a very long time. She was real happy. So I'm not too broken up about That's it. That's good. But in is exciting. Yeah. And I've been on their website. They've got a lot of illustrious makers on there. There's actually a knife maker from Sherwood Park, which is about is that near you? Uh, maybe an hour and a half from where I live, uh, who's on there too, Brody Donnelly Blades, if you guys want to check him out. Um, I don't know, Just that's just a fact that I know. Um, and that's fact. what first made me realize what Shokunin is, is because I was looking at him. And about a year ago, we talked about possibly doing a collaboration because he's stock removal. So we talked about I'd forge a blade and send it to him, and I just we nothing ever came of it. I don't know. Uh, this is this is a terrible anecdote. It's gone nowhere. But I have actually a quite similar anecdote. 
Um, I'm, I'm sure you can relate, because I don't know how many knife makers Central Canada has, but I'm sure it's not too many, but I'm down here in Appalachia, there's like one guy. And don't get me wrong, he's amazing, and his work is incredible. First Degree Forge, give him a follow. And we were talking about doing a uh, collab a couple months ago, it never happened, but it's just him and I in the island of the south. No other makers. Yeah, it's uh, it's sometimes tough to find people, but there, uh, there's a there's a knife maker map somewhere. Is there? I now? don't I don't know what it's called, and I don't know where you can find it. So I'm completely useless. But I did see on Instagram somebody is compiling a map where knife makers can go on and put themselves or other people they know, and I don't know if it takes your exact address or your region. But it should help you connect. So if you're a young knife maker, I don't know, look up knife maker map or something. It might uh, bring up some knife makers you didn't know were around you. Getting together with that or a local blacksmith association is huge and will help you out a lot. Yeah, I, that's that's something I've always wanted to do, but I never had the opportunity to. Because like I said, it's just him and I. But actually, uh, I think there was this one blacksmith organization a couple hours north of me. I don't know. Yeah, it's just an anecdote. Yeah. Well, I know I've got one, too. I talked about it last episode, too. Yeah? With, uh, Mael, Mais... I can't say it. He's, he's French. Uh, Mael, my I'm Miser. <laughs> I give up on the last name. Uh, it's spelled... We would say it Miser. In French, it's pronounced much more gracefully. But I talked about this with him. And, yeah, there's one... I don't know, maybe 45 minutes from me, they meet once a month and I've just never gone but I intend to and if there's one near you I would recommend that you go and link up with some people yeah but if you can't the makery network is the next best thing it's a you know it's a network of makers I'm on the makery obviously um there's just a bunch of podcasts on a bunch of topics for makers it's great when you're in the shop so after you finish this go and check out the rest of the shows they're all great Yes, do do that. The Makery Network is a great company in the shop. Yeah, they sure are. Especially me, though. Oh, yes, the best. Well, regardless, um, let's talk about business. All right. Because, obviously, you've made your way onto the Shokunin, which is an outlet. I've talked about a couple business things this episode. And for the young maker, I find that it's one of the hardest things. Once you start making nice stuff, how do you get it out of the shop? Exactly. So, do you want to talk about your transition from a hobby into uh, a business? Yeah, sure. And just how that's gone for you? Yeah. Um, so, the way I see it, the bottom line of when to transition is number one, of course, if you want to, which is the most important thing probably. But number two, if you can, will people buy your stuff? And, of course... It's not going to be immediate success. You're not going to post your first knife that you're selling up on Etsy and in five minutes somebody's going to buy it. It's a gradual process of getting your name out there, getting recognition, kind of getting your products into the hands of some people. And the way I did that is I would give away a bunch of knives to family, friends, relatives, my dad's friends. You know, and of course the whole gimmick is I'm 15. You're like, wow, look at this. Got a knife made by a 15-year-old. Isn't that crazy? And that entire thing is dependent on is the knife 
kind of acceptable looking enough for somebody to kind of parade it around and be proud of it and show it to people and talk about it. And that's super important. The word of mouth advertising, because you know I'm not I'm not putting up a I'm not putting up a uh, advertisement on CNN. So word of mouth, next best thing. You just gotta yeah, get your stuff out there. You know, it's like you mentioned. It's a matter of do you want to sell your work? Because once you start selling, if you want to use it as a business, you have to start thinking about income, and you have to start thinking about a lot more things that, as Jeff Fader of Knife Talk Podcast, which is also on the Makery Network, uh, he always likes to say, once it's a business, you have to take some of the passion out of it. And, yeah. you know, if it's a side business, then you don't really have to, but if it's what you want to do for all your money, then, yeah, you got to take some of the passion out and put some more hard work and some more time doing stuff that you don't like into the business. Now, you mentioned, do you want to? But another question that you have to ask yourself is, should you? Because I remember one of my first knives, well, yeah, yeah one of the very early knives that must have been, you know, a mile thick. Um, it was, well, I, I thought it looked pretty nice. And I screwed up making the handle and the tang was terrible. So I decided, you know what, if I can figure out handles, like I could probably sell this. And looking at that knife now, I probably, I don't know. Like, I don't even know what I'd do with that. It was awful. So you've got to think about, is this something that, you know, I want some, that somebody else should pay for and I'd feel good about it? Is this something that I want my name on? You know, people are going to find this in a hundred years and it's going to say your name. How how do you feel about that? So you've got to, th- and it'll it has to look nice to sell and it has to perform well for you to be proud of it. So you also have to think about the integrity of it. You know, is it going to hold up and do you believe and do you stand by your product? So those were some of the first things I asked myself before I started selling. And then um, I've found lately that selling is all about outlets. So right now I'm on Instagram and I haven't signed up for Instagram shopping yet, but I've gotten a couple custom orders off there and in future I think I'm going to need to start signing up for... I had an Etsy, but I don't know. I had I struggled with Etsy. They booted I, me off Etsy. Oh, yeah? Too young, man. They got me. They found you? I signed up. I signed up under my dad, and then I just sold my stuff. But, you know, then I'm going to sign up for Instagram shopping. Amazon has a handmade thing, but I've heard that their fees are very high. You'll want to make yourself a website, teaming up with things like Shokunin or... A local knife store if you're that good. Hopefully, fingers crossed for me, I don't know. Yeah, I'm praying but for you, man. All that type of stuff, you've got to find places for the knives to go. And you've got to dial in your processes to get to the point where you can get consistent, repeatable, and high-quality results. And that's all my advice on business. Yeah, and if I may add one last thing. I want to build on what you said with getting your stuff to outlets because often that's my that's the problem I had when I was kind of going into the intermediate stages where I had a product I felt comfortable selling is that like so you walk out of the shop you got this knife in your hand what's what's the next step like you said get a website get an Instagram and it takes it doesn't take a year to develop a following Instagram I've heard it takes 10 years to develop a following. So if you're going to 
like, if you're going to do this, you got to play the long game. You're not going to get orders in the first two weeks. But it's just all about getting your stuff into people's hands. So that's that's my two cents. Yeah, for sure. And I, got, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, the, yeah, the, like you said earlier, the word of mouth is everything. All my, oh, yeah. like, I'd get, I only get orders after somebody posts about one of my knives on their stories. Yeah, that's, that's you know? exactly right. One thing that I've found is, like, really helpful is if you sell a knife to, like, some rich lawyer or something, or some businessman who's got a lot of money, and he'll, like, buy something really nice and put it on his desk so he could talk about it. That is crazy good business. Hmm. I never had that. All my knives go to bodybuilders, which is funny. <laughs> That's um, weird. My, yeah, because the first guy that ordered one of my knives was, you know, sort of connected with Sorenex. Uh, I don't know. I only know that through Josh Smith. Yeah. But, you know, he was he was into weightlifting and things like that. And so all his followers and all his buddies are in that community and so slowly, every order that I get keeps coming from weightlifters and bodybuilders. And so that's sort of, I'm apparently, I'm slowly becoming the go-to guy for, yeah, weightlifters. Corner in the bodybuilder market. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah, I, I got Especially because I'm like the skinniest little teenage kid you ever seen, too. Oh, yeah. Like, I got something I similar. I got where, like uh, one muscle. Well, come on, you gotta be swinging that hammer. That's my one muscle. Oh, yeah, the muscle swinging hammer? You got the you, you can do that party trick where you flex your hand and you got that one muscle nobody else has. So, in <laughs> yeah. that regard, you're beating them out. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I work out some weird muscles. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What, what market are you in? I'm in the biker market, because, um... A lot of my first orders were bikers, like my dad's friends. And it just kind of spread from there. And I don't know why, but like maybe 40% of my orders come from bikers. They want like a little knife well, to put in their saddlebag or strap to their handlebars, something like that. Your knives sort of have like a, a bikery look, you know, they're, they're kind of badass. Look. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Like my knives are just like Japanese chef's knives. I don't see bikers being interested in that. But, you know, you've got, like, nice clips and lines going for you. I can see it. I, I get it. Yeah, I like, I like the uh, like the kind of frontier look. And that's yeah. that's something that, uh, another thing, a biz- little bit of business advice. God knows uh, who am I to be giving business advice, but, but no, anyway, no, here we're it masters. What are you talking oh, about? Yes, I'm a, I'm a wizard of commerce. But uh, yeah. if you're going to, like, do this as a business have several different price ranges. Like in the same week, I'll sell a $600, 400 layered Damascus bow to some lawyer. And then I'll sell a $100 little Skinner to some biker. And I'll sell a $200 little petty chef to some home cook. So you gotta, you gotta get like different types of knives for different price ranges. So that's pretty important, I think. Yeah, and you can uh, you can achieve a lot of that through finishes, you know, a belt finish. Yeah. You can sell cheaper than a hand sanded exactly and you can right. do Damascus. So and handle material. Those are two really easy ways to uh vary your price. 
Yeah, that's why I love the belt finish. I could just zip that thing done from 36 grit to like final finish in a half hour. To be fair though, a disc sander, once you toss it on a disc sander, I'll take it up to, I don't use Trizac belts, but I use the Norton Norax ones. And uh, it's it's similar. It's a structured abrasive. So I'll take it up to, I think it's an 800 grit equivalent. And then I'll toss it on a 600 grit sandpaper on the disc sander. And then I'll hit it with 400 grit. And you know how you cut strips of sandpaper to hand yeah. sand? I'll use one strip aside. That is crazy. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I've been kind of experimenting with, uh, with disc sanders. Because I know your stuff is uh, like full flat, but... I really like the forged finish on the bevels, and I'm having a hard time preserving that on the disc sander. Well, no, I do. I do uh, leave the forged finish up near the spine. You do? Yeah. And that's easy couple. because it's flat. Yeah, it is. And, and hey guys, so I don't know what happened. I must have muted myself or something without noticing for the last like 20 minutes of this episode, which was a great conversation about branding and building an image for your company. And, you know, we had some really insightful information coming from our guest this week, so I guess all I can say is we're going to have to have him on again sometime and, you know, do this conversation again, so I'm really sorry that you guys missed out on that, and I'm sorry that I messed it up, but, you know, I just want to say sorry for the abrupt ending, and thank you all for listening this far. I really appreciate everybody who listens to the Young Makers podcast, which comes out every Tuesday morning. On the Makery Network, check us out and all other shows on the Makery. Check out Brendan's Instagram, which, along with my Instagram and the podcast Instagram, will be in the episode description. Go check all of those out. And until next time, keep making, keep listening. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.